Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a rosé. What are you drinking, Jenny? I'm drinking a nice glass of white wine. Today, we're diving into the mysterious disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, a man who has been missing since 1975. James Riddle Hoffa was born on February 14, 1913 in Brazil, Indiana. His father was a coal miner who died from lung cancer in 1920. His family later moved to Detroit, Michigan. Hoffa left school at 14 and worked as a stock boy. He began union organizing in the early 1930s and organized his first strike while working for Kroger grocery stores. By 1940, Hoffa became chairman of the Central States Drivers Council and by 1942, president of the Michigan Conference of Teamsters. In 1952, he was elected an international vice president of the Teamsters, and five years later, he succeeded Dave Beck as international president. Hoffa successfully centralized administration and bargaining in the International Office of the Union. He also played a key role in the creation of the first national freight hauling agreement. His efforts helped make the Teamsters the largest labor union in the United States. The Teamsters were a labor union that represented a mix of professional and blue-collar workers in the private and public sectors. Though Hoffa was successful in strengthening the Teamsters, he was known to have connections with organized crime groups. These controversial ties drew criticism from many, including then-Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. After being convicted of jury tampering, fraud, and attempted bribery, the union leader began serving a 13-year prison sentence in 1967. Hoffa refused to resign as president of the Teamsters while in prison and kept his position until 1971. He later received a presidential pardon from Richard Nixon in 1971 on the condition that he would not participate in any union activity until 1980. Hoffa fought this in court, and many believe he continued union work despite the restriction. On July 30, 1975, Hoffa was at a restaurant, The Red Fox, in Bloomingfield Township, Michigan. Hoffa called his wife, Josephine, from a payphone to say that he'd been stood up at a lunch meeting with two mobsters. He was never seen or heard from again. Hoffa's family told investigators that he had an appointment at the restaurant with Anthony Provenzano, a New Jersey Teamster official and former mafia figure, and Anthony Giacalone, a Detroit mobster. Both later denied having encountered Hoffa. Five witnesses later told federal investigators they saw Hoffa in the parking lot of the Red Fox that afternoon, appearing as if he was waiting for someone. His daughter, Barbara Cranser, said, quote, The only thing we know for certain are the notes that he left of who he was meeting when he was meeting them. He left it in writing. He left the time and the initials of the people. Then if he went and kept that meeting, which I'm sure he did, then those had to be the people responsible. That's the only thing I can say. They made the appointment, end quote. Investigators doubt if Hoffa thought the meeting would take place there since the upscale restaurant required a coat and tie at the time and Hoffa wore a casual shirt and slacks the afternoon of his disappearance. Several witnesses said Hoffa was seen leaving the restaurant in a burgundy-colored mercury Marquis with three other men, including a driver who appeared to be Charles Chucky O'Brien, a Hoffa protege, who was considered to be the stepson 
to Hoffa. A police crime dog found traces of Hoffa's scent in the rear passenger seat and investigators recovered a single strand of hair in it. Years later, DNA testing would match the hair to Hoffa. Hoffa was legally declared quote-unquote presumed dead in 1982. His son, James P. Hoffa, now serves as president of the Kingsters. Let's get into the theories as to where Jimmy Hoffa is buried and how he died. The most popular belief is that Hoffa was murdered by the mob. It's thought that Hoffa was murdered to prevent him from disclosing mob infiltration of the Teamsters, including its tapping into the union's pension funds to finance its rackets. Frank Fitzsimmons, Hoffa's successor as Teamsters president, had formed a relationship with the mob while Hoffa served his sentence. When Hoffa was released, he tried to regain power within the organization, and the mafia didn't want Hoffa to jeopardize their plans or ties to Fitzsimmons. Federal investigators shared this theory in the 1976 Hoffa's memo. The document also featured names of suspects, including a few that we already named, Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano, a New Jersey mobster and Teamster official with whom Hoffa thought he was meeting, Anthony Tony Jack Giacolone, a Detroit Mafia captain with whom Hoffa was also scheduled to meet the day he disappeared, and Salvatore Sally Bugs Bergoglio, a Provenzano henchman suspected by investigators of being the trigger man in Hoffa's killing. Giacolone was said to be arranging a reconciliation meeting between Hoffa and Provenzano. Hoffa and Provenzano had become friends while in prison, but had an argument at some point and then became enemies. Gia Cologne was at the Southfield Athletic Club the day of the disappearance, speaking to both strangers and acquaintances, which was thought of as his way of creating a solid alibi during the exact time Hoffa was murdered. Provenzano was confirmed to have been playing cards with his brother at a union hall in New Jersey on the day Hoffa vanished. Both men are now deceased. Many people believe Hoffa was murdered and buried in the Detroit area. Prosecutor Keith Corbett believes that Hoffa was murdered somewhere near the restaurant and that his body was run through a cardboard dreading machine at the Central Sanitation Services, a mob-owned garbage disposal service in Hamtrak that was destroyed in an arson fire about six months after Hoffa's disappearance. Another popular theory is that Hoffa was killed at a Milford Township horse farm owned by Roland McMaster, a Teamsters enforcer. Author of The Hoffa Wars, Dan Maldia, supports this theory, saying in 2019, quote, The best evidence is that Hoffa was driven to McMaster's farm where he was murdered by Sally Bugs Bergoglio, end quote. He further said Hoffa's body was, quote, then stuffed into a 55-gallon drum and shipped via a gateway transportation truck to his final resting place, end quote, at a mob-owned landfill on the Hackensack River in New Jersey. Gateway was a trucking company whose president served as a trustee of the Teamster Pension Fund. Moldia said the location in New Jersey, 600 miles away from Detroit, was chosen as an insurance policy. An indicted mobster could attempt to strike a bargain with federal prosecutors offering to locate Hoffa's body in exchange for a lighter prison sentence. Moldia's information came from Frank Capola, whose father, Paul Capola, was a partner in the dump at the time Hoffa disappeared. The younger Capola said that as his father was dying in 2008, he recounted what happened so that Hoffa's family could eventually recover his remains. Capola even signed a sworn affidavit for Moldia sharing his father's version of events. 
The affidavit also stated that the corpse wouldn't fit into the new drum feet first, so it was shoved in head first. Capola used a front-end loader to bury the barrel in a pre-dug hole at the dump and covered it with 15 to 30 other drums containing chemical waste and that Capola buried a marker over the spot, which should make it easy to find. Though part of the former landfill site was sold, Moldia said he believes that Hoffa's body remains where it was originally buried in 1975. The FBI shared that they'd absolutely be willing to search this area if more credible evidence was given to them. In 2004, a deathbed confession by Frank Sharon, a Pennsylvania Teamster official, prompted police to search Hoffa's Oakland County, Michigan home. They took forensic evidence from the home where blood was found on the floorboards but couldn't be matched to Hoffa. In 2013, Tony Zarelli, the son of reputed former Detroit mob boss Joseph Zarelli, told investigators that Hoffa was buried under a concrete slab in an Oakland County field. Zarelli claimed Hoffa was struck with a shovel and then buried alive on the property with a slab of concrete placed over the body. The FBI received a search warrant to excavate the field for Hoffa's body but found nothing. Finally, one of the wildest theories is that Hoffa was buried under Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. The idea was first floated by mob hitman Donald Tony the Greek Frankos in an interview with Playboy magazine in 1989. Frankos, an informant who turned state witness, insisted that he had no personal involvement with the murder, but had been told that two other Jersey wise guys were responsible for the murder, dismemberment, and eventual burial of Hoffa's body beneath one of the stadium's end zones. Officials and Hoffa's family were suspicious of the claims, but supporters of the theory noted that Hoffa did disappear while the complex was under construction. The giant stadium theory was put to rest in 2010 when the building was demolished to make way for a new sports complex. With these theories being said, investigators don't think anyone will ever be charged in relation to Hoffa's disappearance or that there will be new developments in his case due to the amount of time that has passed. Hoffa's daughter, Barbara Cranter, said, quote, Most of the people that were suspects are gone. I guess it won't be solved. It would be a comfort to find his body, but I don't think we will, end quote. She went on to say, quote, if you ever have anyone in your family who is taken away from you by force, you know what a gap it leaves in your heart. You miss them so much, end quote. As of 2015, Hoffa's case was inactive, but not closed. Del, what do you think happened to Jimmy Hoffa and where do you think he's buried? So I think that Jimmy Hoffa was murdered on the day that he disappeared and Quite frankly, I don't think that there is any body to find. I think that they disposed of his body in a way to leave no trace and that any small remnants, ashes, anything like that were most likely uh, disposed of in some body of water. Yeah, I don't think that they wanted any chance of him becoming a martyr or some other symbol. And so they made sure that when they killed him, he would never have a true resting place. What do you think? 
I'm kind of leaning toward um, what Dan Muldeo's source said about him being buried in the New Jersey landfill. It's very specific, and I feel like it does support the idea that he was killed in Detroit and then transferred. But you have a really good point because the mafia does not leave traces of people behind. So I know that one investigator had said that they think his body went through a cardboard shredding machine. That unfortunately sounds plausible to me. I don't think we're ever going to find out what really happened to him, which is really sad. That statement from his daughter at the end is really sad about how much she misses her dad. You know, even though he wasn't a perfect person, he still didn't deserve to like go out the way that he did. And he does deserve to be brought back to his family. And I think it's very obvious that the mafia did kill him. I don't think that there's any other theories. I don't think he just like wanted to start a new life. Like we just said, we definitely agree that there was some type of mafia involvement and mafias and unions actually have a really uh, long-standing history with one another. Historically organized criminal groups such as La Cosa Nostra gained substantial corrupt influence and even control over labor unions by creating a climate of fear and intimidation among employers and union members by threats and acts of violence. The Italian-American organized crime families obtained their foothold in the unions in the 1920s and 30s when management and labor both called on gangsters for protection and as a counterforce to communist and socialist elements. Organized crime groups often committed labor racketeering, which is the use of organized labor for criminal reasons. Racketeering can include exploitation of employers or union members or both. It can also include forcing employers to pay for employees who don't work, to pay off corrupt officials, or even just straight blackmail, to mention a few uh, examples. John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert worked diligently to dismantle organized crime groups and corrupt unions. JFK was very strongly against corruption. Whether related to the mafia or not, there's still widespread corruption in many labor movements. The Department of Labor's Office of Labor Management Standards has investigated and prosecuted union leaders for embezzling more than $100 million in union dues since 2001. And I think this specific report was possibly from 2019. And it went on to say that investigations by the Department of Labor's Office of the Inspector General, which investigates labor racketeering and organized crimes influence within the labor movement, has resulted in more than $1 billion in fines, restitutions and forfeitures. So now we'll take a look at two interesting and notable mafia crimes. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the Prohibition era execution style murder of six mobsters associated with George Bugs Marone's Northside Irish Gang in Chicago on February 14, 1929. The incident was part of a fight between Marone's Irish gang and Al Capone's Southside Italian gang for control of organized crime in the city. The pair fought for control of smuggling and trafficking operations in Chicago. During this incident, four of Al Capone's men, dressed as police officers, entered Marone's headquarters. They lined seven men up, all Marone's henchmen, and shot and killed them. Moran actually walked outside of the headquarters after seeing the police go in, thinking that his men were being arrested. This was the last confrontation between the men as Capone was imprisoned 
1931, and Moran lost so many important men that he could no longer control his territory. Another more recent case of mafia involvement is the McDonald's Monopoly scandal. In the 1990s, Jerome Uncle Jerry Jacobson, who had ties to the Colombo crime family, began a multi-million dollar scheme involving the McDonald's Monopoly game. And for those that aren't familiar, McDonald's Monopoly was a promotional game where customers could win everything from free french fries to a new car to a million dollars just by purchasing food and drinks from McDonald's and peeling a sticker off the containers. Uncle Jerry, who was the former director of security for Simon Marketing, which was the company that McDonald's used for the Monopoly game pieces, was tasked with looking after game pieces for McDonald's promotional events, making sure no employees pocketed any of the prizes themselves. He would take the stickers to packaging centers around the country where he would apply them himself to french fry cartons and soda cups bound for McDonald's locations, previously selected by a random computer drawing. The winning stickers were kept in a tamper-proof briefcase, and when carrying the stickers, Uncle Jerry was followed by an independent auditor. However, he was accidentally sent a package of tamper-proof seals, so he was able to open and close the briefcase without anyone knowing. And when he was in the bathroom, not accompanied by the auditor, who was a woman, Jacobson would take the winning stickers and replace them with other game pieces. And when we say the winning stickers, we mean the million-dollar stickers. He used friends and family to recruit people who would pay tens of thousands of dollars up front to Jacobson and his network of recruiters to secure winning game pieces worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, all the way up to the $1 million grand prize. Just like Jacobson, the recruiters would typically also demand cash payments up front to the eventual winners. And these winners included friends, families, and acquaintances. The FBI received a tip about one of the winners in 2000 and an investigation started. The FBI arrested Jacobson and seven accomplices in August 2001, charging them all with felony conspiracy to commit mail fraud as part of the sprawling scheme that had netted a total of more than $24 million worth of cash and prizes. Jimmy Hoffa is one of the most well-known missing people in American history. His case has been the inspiration for countless books, movies, and urban legends. But he is not the only person that has gone missing under suspicious circumstances. Amelia Earhart was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic and the first solo person to fly from the continental U.S. to Hawaii. She was an experienced pilot that broke barriers. On June 1st, 1939, Amelia Earhart took off from Oakland, California on a eastbound flight around the world. It was her second attempt to become the first pilot to ever circumnavigate the globe. In July 1939, while somewhere over the Pacific, Earhart and her navigator Fred Noonan lost radio contact with the U.S. Coast Guard which was anchored off of the coast of Howland Island. President Franklin D. Roosevelt authorized a massive two-week search for the pair, but they were never found. On July 19, 1937, Earhart and Noonan were declared lost at sea. Her plane wreckage was never found, and no one is exactly sure what happened to the duo. Another famous case is that of D.B. Cooper. 
On November 24, 1971, a man calling himself Dan Cooper got on a flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington and handed a flight attendant a note saying that he had a bomb in his suitcase and he needed her to sit near him. He then sent her to the cockpit with a note demanding four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. When the flight landed in Seattle, the hijacker exchanged the flight's 36 passengers for the money and parachutes. Cooper kept several crew members and the plane took off again, ordered to set a course for Mexico City. Somewhere between Seattle, Washington and Reno, Nevada, a little after 8 p.m., the hijacker jumped out of the back of the plane with a parachute and the ransom money. The man known as D.B. Cooper was never found and his true identity has never been discovered. Many wonder if he even survived his jump from the flight. And finally, there is the case of Shelley Miscavige. Michelle Shelley Miscavige is the wife of David Miscavige, who many of you likely know as the head of the Church of Scientology. Shelley and David married in 1982, and Shelley has not been publicly seen since 2007. The church has said, quote, Mrs. Miscavige has never been missing and is living her life to her choosing, end quote. But many do not believe that and fear she is either being held captive or was murdered. In 2013, actress and former Church of Scientology member Leah Remney filed a missing persons report for Shelley. However, the LAPD has classified the report as unfounded, indicating that Shelley is not missing. Many, including retired LAPD officers, believe the investigation was poorly handled and think something suspicious has happened to Shelley. Del, do you have any theories on any of these disappearances? So I definitely think that Amelia Earhart was lost at sea. I think that she had a fuel issue, most likely. And so she wasn't able to safely land and her plane hit the sea and she is probably buried with her aircraft. For D.B. Cooper, I want to think that he survived. He did lose some of the money, but I think ultimately he was able to get away with it. And for Shelly Miscavige, I don't really know. I think that there is definitely a possibility that she wanted to not be in the public eye anymore. And so she decided just to withdraw. But there is a lot of shady things that go on with the Church of Scientology. So I wouldn't be surprised if her absence from public life is not completely of her own choosing. What do you think? I feel the same way about Amelia Earhart. I really would like to believe that she did land on an island somewhere and just like lived out her days on that island with whoever was living on it. But I think the most logical thing is that they just crash landed in the water and didn't survive. D.B. Cooper, something tells me that he didn't make it, but we never found a body. So I guess I can't be certain of that. And Shelly Miscavige... I think she's probably dead. I mean, I could also believe that she is being held captive somewhere because like you said, the Church of Scientology has had a lot of allegations and it's clear to me that the LAPD were probably paid off by David Miscavige or someone within Scientology. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the mysterious disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa and what do you think happened to him? You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. 
We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the story of Khalif Browder. As always, stay safe. Thank <laughs> you.